0: On this episode of The Playbook, I have the incredible entrepreneur, Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square, and we're gonna talk about the innovation stack, building an unbeatable business, one crazy idea at a time. How are we gonna do it? Through ignorance, it's not a problem. Join me for all this and more on The Playbook. This is Entrepreneur's The Playbook where each week I bring you some of the greatest athletes, celebrities, and entrepreneurs to talk about their personal and professional playbook to success and what made them champions on the field and in the boardroom. I'm your host, David Meltzer. I have the incredible entrepreneur, Jim McKelvey. He's the co-founder of Square, and he's also an author of a book that's completely aligned with my philosophy in life. Jim, welcome to The Playbook. Thanks, David. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. You know, let's start with the book. You had a new book in 2020 called The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at uh, at a Time. You know, what was the crazy idea that you built Square on? Uh,
1: This idea that uh, normal people with small businesses should be able to accept credit cards. It it was radical for 2009, and now it's become commonplace. But at the time, it was sort of nuts.
0: what was just to you know? There's a lot of younger people that'll be watching, and you know, I they they don't even remember not having cell phones. So, uh, you know, what were the critical business issues for small businesses? Why couldn't they take credit cards back then?
1: Well, basically, if you didn't have a hundred thousand dollars or more of volume, you were priced out of the credit card market. Uh, the, uh, the the merchants vendors sellers. at the time. Yeah, they just didn't want to service anybody that small, and the the companies that were small, and these were still you know sub million dollar businesses, were paying huge rates. So there was this um, inefficiency in the system, which actually didn't need to exist. You know, if you look back 30 years when credit cards were basically carbon copies moving on trucks, then um, it was a fairly inefficient system, and you needed a certain volume to justify. Um, doing credit cards. But all those efficiencies had been wiped out. But the historic barriers to small businesses participating had not been wiped out.
0: And were there certain risks involved that the banks felt uh, didn't justify, you know, allowing the receivables to get to that point? Is that part of it?
1: Yeah, but it's, it's more that people tend to overemphasize the past and underweight the future. So if it's all been working for the last 30 years and you're a banker, you're not gonna sit there and say, well, you know, what's changed today? Um, but when Jack and I started Square, I mean, these you know, little devices, it was called the iPhone 2 uh, had, had just come out and we were all uh, expecting this device to be uh, super useful however we wanted. And at the time it could not process payments and now it can.
0: And what's so funny is you think about people who come up with crazy ideas that today seem commonplace and necessary and, you know, extremely successful, like Square. What were some of the things when you went out, you know, from launch code to switch over into, you know, what today is, you know, one of you know, the biggest areas I think for small businesses to help propel them. What were some of the things that the VCs were saying to you? Uh, Because I couldn't imagine there'd be any resistance to building a business uh, from people who kind of knew what business was about.
1: Well, the VCs were very kind to us, but I explained in the book that we had a very radical presentation. Um, First of all, we had a completely working product. Secondly, we had customers. Uh, Thirdly, we didn't need their money. And then fourth, and this was probably the most radical thing, we told them all the reasons we were probably going to fail. So it was a pitch unlike any other. And uh, one of the, the the managing partner of probably the best VC firm in the Valley uh, said it was the best piece he'd ever seen. Um, And it wasn't that we were, uh, you know, so slick it was that in fact we were kind of showing all the warts on our idea and basically saying look what we're trying to do right now is violating 17 different laws rules and regulations so you know you understand if you give us your money we're right now breaking the law so uh <laughs> you know it, it was a it was a different type of pitch um uh, but they seemed to like it i mean we got uh, probably 20 firms interested and we took what we thought was the best
0: and you you know had your career beforehand which went from nonprofit organization, uh, you know like launch code to working for and with the Federal Reserve. So you had some credibility in the space, you know utilizing the strategy of illumination. Have you always been someone to kind of illuminate the warts and to then allow yourself to address the reasons, impacts, and capabilities of how you are going to accomplish what you want to accomplish? So I was raised and trained as an engineer.
1: And engineers spend their time discussing problems. So when I moved into sales, my technique was to just explain all the stuff that was wrong with our product and uh, see if the client could handle those problems. And a lot of times uh, my sales rates were orders of magnitude better than professional salespeople. And I could never figure this out. And it turns out that, oh, most people expect the salesperson to lie to them. So if you start out by, you know, sort of honestly discussing the shortcomings of what you're selling, because look, every product has shortcomings, um, then uh, it leads to a different kind of conversation. By the way, this works in social situations too, you know, don't try to pretend you're everything, uh, you know, maybe, maybe tone that filter down a little bit and you'll have better, better success.
0: Yeah, I needed you as a young entrepreneur when I would oversell, back-end sell, (laughs) exaggerate. And uh, now that I'm older and I see others do that, I'm like, gosh, I wish I just would have told the truth because the truth would have been enough. Um, One of the qualities that you have is, you know, I have watched your career and even learned more now through this interview, is that you hold the common denominator of successful people. And that's the desire that you must be what you can be. That mediocre is not even a question for you. You know, what has, uh, you know, in, c- compelled you in your life to have that drive to be the best that you can be?
1: I, I don't know that it's a drive to be the best. It, it For me, it's just a restlessness to not accept certain problems. So if you look at the arc of my career, it's always been uh, something's frustrated me and I've tried to build something to fix it. And in some cases, I try to build something that hasn't been built before, in which case I'm forced to create something new. And that's essentially what the book talks about. Um, Sort of the whole premise of the innovation stack is that most of the time you're gonna spend your life working in an area where humans have solved the problems. So um, like right now, I've got a wart on my finger. I don't know if you can see it, it's kind of gross, but like it's, you know, like I got a wart right there. This is a solved problem. I go to the dermatologist, I put this stuff on for two weeks and the wart's gonna go away. Um, Or maybe it won't, but but at least I don't have to figure out how to get a wart off a finger in a, Different world, if that had not been a solved problem, I would have to do experiments and research and set up clinical trials, but that's a solved problem. Most of our lives we spend working in the world of solved problems. And as a matter of fact, you can spend your whole life there. You can start a business, you can be super successful and never do anything original. Um, The reason I wrote the innovation stack and the reason I'm so grateful for you helping me spread the word to, to, to basically young people is that look, You don't have to spend your entire life copying other people's solutions. There may be a time, two or three times in your life, when you run up up against a problem that you care deeply about, and there is no existing solution. And then the question is, are you willing to move beyond the world of copying, move beyond the world of known solutions and try stuff that might not work? Because the whole premise of innovation is that you're trying something new, it might not work. It's much better to copy something that works, but if you can't copy, innovation is your last resort. And because of that, it's got this weird set of tools. And this was the thing that, that sort of confounded me when I was early in my career, is that I would have a problem and I would go to one of my friends who had a successful business and I would say, hey, David, how do you solve this problem? And you'd, you know, you'd give me great advice that works in your world and I take it back to my world and it would blow up in my face. And what I finally realized is that companies who are innovating have a different set of physics that apply. And I found this not only at Square, but I studied, well, frankly, over 100 companies that fit the same pattern that I describe in the book, which is this innovation is different world.
0: It's so interesting because you have to have a certain set of beliefs as well. And one of those beliefs is, you know, the belief that anything is possible. And one of the down, I think, uh, turns in technology is that, a lot of technology has exceeded people's expectations. So you know, I have some of my employees reading science fiction to increase their creativity, their curiosity, but even more importantly, I want them to believe that anything's possible and we need to catch up our imaginations to technology sometimes, which you know, when you and I were growing up was absolutely not the case. Uh, I think we have a shift in the paradigm that we have to work on this belief system that anything is possible, that we put too many limitations on ourselves. Uh, how can we help people of all ages work on what you are a master of believing anything is possible?
1: So um, a substitute for believing anything is possible, which is the sort of the ultimate uh, mind state is uh, ignorance. <laughs> and that is to not know what you're doing is considered impossible is almost the same. And I would say that I'm not, I, I don't believe, well, I guess I could I kind of do believe anything's possible. That's that's sort of a weird thing about me, but I don't think that's necessary. I think just being ignorant enough about the challenges. Um, one of the patterns that I found in the innovation stack was, was super interesting. And that is these world-changing companies were all founded by people outside the industry. So the biggest bank in the world, like what you think of as banking right now was started by a kid who dropped out of school at uh, age 13 um, and became a produce vendor. Like he never finished fifth grade, Never, I mean, my God, he, he never formally schooled or anything. Every bank you walk into, every bank in the world is basically modeled on what this kid developed. Uh, this was hundred years ago. Um, the biggest airline in the country started by a lawyer who didn't know anything about airlines. Um, Square, you know, Jack and I knew nothing about payments. Um, you can see again and again. And, and so that ignorance um, is, is a precious thing because if you're innovating, Ignorance is not a problem. And and here's why this is is a critical idea. In the world that you're used to living in, expertise is so valuable. You know what can be done, you know what can't be done. And for the good reasons, probably. But if you're doing something that humanity has never done before, then nobody is an expert. There is no expertise. You cannot be anything but ignorant. All of society is ignorant. So your personal ignorance is no reason to stop. And what I mean by that is, look, as you reach that edge of what mankind has figured out how to do, you're going to have this sort of physiological fear response that says, you better stop now, David, you're you're getting close to that line. And your friends are going to be telling you, what the hell are you doing, man? Like, oh, you know, the people who love you are going to say, stop, stop, hold on. If you choose to ignore them, you're not necessarily going to die but it is going to be in this world where all of the skills you've had, the things you've learned in school to, you know, educate yourself before you do something that doesn't apply anymore. So ignorance can be very helpful.
0: And with, you know, ignorance or the belief that anything's possible or the combination thereof, which you have, you know, you still have to, withstand, as you said, the people who are closest to us, that care the most about us, who want our security, that don't want us to fall off the edge, don't want us to fail. They would prefer us to be doctors, lawyers, uh, and do things within the limitations and expectations of safety and security. But you have to be able to withstand people laughing at you, making fun of you, scoffing at you, and not believing in you. And therefore, whether you're ignorant or if you just think anything's possible, you have to have this firm belief in yourself. Uh, but I think you probably have a little different perspective than just believing in yourself. What is it for you that you know allowed you to continue on when you know people at every stage, from when you graduated, wash you on? You kind of did things outside the box. What drove you to say, you know what? I'm okay with failing, or I'm okay with what you think, but I'm going to do what I think.
1: Well, I was never very popular, (laughs) so popularity wasn't that valuable a commodity.
0: So losing the superpower, by the way, you know all the things when we're young that suck become superpowers when we're older.
1: Yeah, I mean, look if if you're not used to being popular, then losing your popularity, who cares? You know, it's sort of like when I was really poor and I lost some more money. I was like, well, it's not going to get much worse. You (laughs) know, that's me. So (laughs) um, yeah, I mean. Uh, so there's you know, you don't have that far to fall. But look, the, the thing that I've seen over time is that innovation always seems obvious and in hindsight. And I remember enough looking at decisions that I was going to make and saying I have no idea if this is going to work, at, at, including Square. Like Jack and I made a bet when we started the company that this thing was going to either flop or succeed. And we set ourselves a one year timeline. We, we put a date on a calendar. We said, okay, we're getting together. No matter what happens, even if we're at each other's throats you know, in eight months, we're going to s- sit down a year from now and evaluate what happened. Well, it turns out it worked out really well. But over time, I've gotten used to making decisions where I have no idea what the outcome is going to be. And then being right later, and then having everyone said, oh, you were so visionary to know. And I was like, no it was a stab in the dark but sometimes it works and, and look people remember the successes
0: yeah that's for sure and speaking of which you know your book is about fixing problems and you know having whatever attributes it is in order to one identify a problem two to have the uh, ability or capability to fix those problems but one of the things that i see is you also have humility you know not only in illuminating Uh, your weaknesses, but seeking help from people that can solve those problems for you, meaning in order to solve the external problem that you identify, it seems to me that you have relied on other people with their expertise, with humility to uh, seek their help. How do you, number one, find those people and two, ask them for the help that you're looking for? So um, humility is probably
1: one of the entrepreneur's greatest assets, which it, it has to be combined in this weird way with hubris. Like the the, 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 the hubris is we're going to go forward. And the humility is we don't know the path. Yeah. And and keeping those somewhat contradictory thoughts in your head at the same time is, is, is the challenge because as you're going down the path, as in some cases you're leading down the path, you have to admit you don't know that it is actually a path. And um, I would say that, if you are too bold, the problem is that you will ignore feedback from the world, which is giving you direction. Now this is different than your friends, you know, and family saying, hey, don't do it. But sometimes your friends and family are right. Like it's, and so you, you, you really end up with this very weird situation on your hand where you have to keep going, but keep listening at the, as you go.
0: Last question, you know, from the time you were 19, when you wanted to fix the problem with your computer science book, so you just wrote your own (laughs) all all the way through your career, you've been fixing problems. I just have to ask you, what's the next problem you want to fix? So I'm working on two right now. Um, I'm working on a
1: solution for our online identities because your eyeballs get bought and sold a thousand times a day without your permission or in some cases, against your wishes, and I think there is a solution to that. I don't know that we can do it. I've got a company called Invisibly, and I'm actually wearing the T-shirt today, you know. Um, but the uh, the solution partially works, but it doesn't completely work yet. So I'm working on that. Um, the other thing is, I think the world needs a cheaper diaper. Um, poverty starts for, yeah, I mean it really does. If so you look good. at where, if you look at where poverty starts, it's typically when. Um, uh, young family or sometimes just a young mother uh, has to pay for diapers. And if you can't pay 25 cents a pop for diapers, uh, you get shunted into this world where you don't get to take advantage of daycare. You don't get to you, you, you just you just get your life taken away from you for something that I think could be done. So I'm trying to build a diaper that you know costs a nickel.
0: You're an incredible entrepreneur. That just says it all. I can't think of a better way to finish up. I can't wait to finish the innovation stack building an unbeatable business. One. Crazy idea at a time, you can find it anywhere. I'm with the incredible entrepreneur, co founder of Square, soon to save the world by creating the cheapest diaper ever created, <laughs> and it will still be viable and useful. Uh, Jim McKelvey, thank you for joining me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the playbook as much as me. On a personal note, I just wanted to thank everyone for making the playbook such a success. Don't forget to continue it by sharing, subscribing, and listening to your favorite episodes. This is Dave Meltzer with The Playbook.